0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet.
1: But a giant anteater, or all anteaters for that matter, they walk on their front knuckles.
0: What can they teach us? By these large mandibles, maybe getting some acid spray or whatever, and is like, okay, this. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement
1: at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome
0: to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: Angie, episode 77, or the official episode 77. Can you imagine we've done that many? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean honestly, it probably doesn't feel more than like twenty-eight or twenty-nine or something. Yeah, I don't know where I that know. number came from, but it does not feel like seventy-seven.
0: No, no, it is. It, I just it hit me today because seventy-seven is my favorite number. That was my my football jersey number.
1: Oh, nice! I didn't know that. Okay. I yeah. was a four, four, fourteen or forty-four. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm, yeah. Like four. 4 so. Okay. Well, and then seven seven is my favorite person's birthday. So, she's born on July seventh. Oh. So it's easy to remember. I'm never going to forget it. Nice seventy seven. Yeah, I like my favorite it. Number. I yeah, like it. Yeah. So it's a good number. Um, we've actually done a lot more episodes than that, but this is just our official seventy seven. So
1: sure, here we go. Remember that one we? Oh, remember that one we recorded, but we didn't actually record it. <laughs> <laughs> God. That was back in the beginning. We're like <laughs> oh halfway through. Did you hit this record or save oh, button? Oops. Explicit but explicit.
0: Oh, people yeah. that yeah, do podcasts, I guarantee you they they've done that before. But yeah, we were like a good forty minutes in and I realized I didn't press record. <laughs> it's <was> horrible. <laughs> So, oh man, it was
1: fun, and I was, fun times. That's, I was like, that's not my job, right? Yeah, I know. So, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's definitely been a fun ride. And once again, this episode had me reeling at the edge of my seat when mm-hmm. I was learning a lot of the physiology about the giant, giant ant eater. Ant
0: eater. Yeah. Like amazing, amazing physiology, like really cool physiology.
1: Oh yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal. And so hopefully you'll stick with us today and make it to the end of the episode and we'll and learn a lot of fun, really cool facts about behavior and physiology of the anteater. And you will fall, if you're not already in love, if you haven't seen one, um, either in the wild or at your local mm. zoo, um, definitely go online and look at our show notes because, or Google mm. image one. Mm. They're just so darn cute, and they, they are. They, they are. seem to have big personalities just from watching them. I could watch them all day. It's very, oh, very zen- amazing. I guess I like to, I like to watch animals eat. But yes, watching them hunt for their insects is really, really yeah. cool, and they're beautiful. Their yeah. markings are stunning. So, yeah,
0: this is a this is an animal I could watch eat. You're right. Like instead of just horses grazing all day or zebras or you know, any which boband. is awesome
1: and phenomenal. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for you, <laughs> but for an anteater, yeah, like would just be oh, amazing to watch. Uh, and we're going to get to how they do that and some of their food preferences. And you want to stay tuned because at the end, we're going to tell you if anteaters or giant anteaters per se are dangerous or not. So, so stay tuned for that. It, it might surprise you, might not. There, Angie, there are three species of anteaters. So we're going to cover the giant anteater, which we have here in North America. I think there's about 90. There's an estimate 90 under human care in North America. The all the species of anteater are in really Mexico down to South America. So you know, hello to all of our listeners down there. We, we have a. You
1: know, I know we're a back. Bunch in of Central, listeners down there. Yeah, right. We're back in Central South America again, which is one of my favorite places to be. So yeah, yeah, yeah. home of the giant anteater.
0: Yep. And you know, just real quick, I looked, you know, I was looking at our statistics and we picked up a huge listenership in Rwanda all of a sudden. I think it was because of the gorilla episode, but I was cool. like, that was amazing. We got a big spike in Rwanda. I was like all smiles
1: seeing that. So I love that was it. Really hello cool. Rwanda. Hopefully you yes. have interest in ant eaters too. Or hope yeah. or will, will help encourage you to want to conserve yes. ant eaters as well because Chris have too much of a spoiler alert because we'll talk a lot about Conservation with anteaters and what's mm-hmm. happening uh, with the giant anteater and the other species. But yeah, they're not doing too well in the wild. I, I, I guess they were off my radar. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, they're, they're vulnerable and the numbers aren't very high. And so we'll touch a lot on that when we get down, when we get down to conservation. So you'll definitely want to stick with us because they're a large, really cool mammal and it'd be sad if we didn't conserve them.
0: No, I know, I know, but. The giants are one of three species. So then you also have the silky anteater, which ranges from southern Mexico, Central, and South America. And then a favorite of a lot of people is the Tamandua. So there's the Southern or Northern, and they're Central and South America. So did you get to work with anteaters at all? Or you were just all hoof stock?
1: I no, I did not, no. Just okay. hoofstock. Okay. Well, no, I did well, I take that back. I did a lot I did a lot at the farm and I did a lot with small mammals and reptiles and birds and so i think this would could be more considered a a larger animal and i don't oh, yeah. Um, so yeah no i i uh i did i did take care of armadillos but that's a lot smaller ver- that's a, one of the only insectivores i took care of okay okay well
0: i mean the giants are are big but I cle- I mean-
1: but clearly i missed i clearly missed out because yeah.
0: They're cool. They are super cool. They're cool. They are really cool. And they, you know, I mean, we talk about giant. They're big. I mean, up to seven feet long. You know, it, it's over two and a half meters. They are very long from nose to tail.
1: Yes. They, uh one place described them as golden retriever size. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. about 60 to 140 pounds with males being heavier than females. hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah. they're giants that they get that they earn their name. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, they're big. They're big. Now, what's really cool about these anteaters is is their snout. They just have this really elongated snout and it's really pronounced. And I mean, it's almost like I don't know, it's not tapered towards the end. It's just a really long snout, like really long. And the giant anteater, which I love, is just their color, their coloration, their striping.
1: Yes. Yeah, they have this fur that's thick and coarse, longer towards the tail and and if you look at their tail, it almost looks like a golden retriever tail with all the beautiful fur hanging down from it. Mm-hmm. And it's typically, the tail's typically black, mm-hmm. uh, it's dark brownish in color, and overall their coat is brown with and black with a white stripe, which is super charming, on the shoulders mm-hmm. and along the middle of their back.
0: Yeah, it's camouflage. I mean, it's it's, you know, that that coloration helps camouflage them uh, whenever they're out sure. foraging in the jungles or savannas.
1: Yeah, and and they on their forelegs they're white with black toe bands at uh, at their their feet. Mm-hmm. And one one place described it as it looks like they have pandas on their feet because it's yeah. like white and then black at the tip. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. cute. Uh, but yeah, and then their hind feet have five short claws and their forefeet have five claws with the inner three being like very, very sharp and long. Yeah, like razor blades
0: almost. They're, they're, they're really, they're Mm -hmm. really strong. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, those claws really can do a lot of damage, especially for termite mounds or ant mounds, you know, to, to get to their prey.
1: And Chris, what really struck me, I guess I never knew because I probably never spent a ton of time watching them like I have recently this past week and reading about them watching videos of the, their gait. But a giant anteater, or all anteaters for that matter, they walk on their front knuckles
0: mm-hmm.
1: or wrists.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like the wrists. They, they, it's almost like a chimpanzee or a gorilla.
1: Right, yeah. So it's like, yeah, their knuckles or their wrists. They do this to avoid like stabbing themselves with their sharp claws. So it keeps yeah. their claws out of the way while they walk, which is just so fascinating. What What a unique physiology.
0: Yeah, unique adaptation, you know, just like, Mm -hmm. it's just, again, biology is just amazing. Love it, love it, love it. Now, the giant anteater specific range is Central and South America. So really from Honduras down to North Argentina, you know, all the way across east to Brazil and the Atlantic Ocean. Generally, tropical rainforest or scrublands or savanna there. Now, they did find bones of Giant anteaters in southern Mexico, but they've, that was a long time ago, thousands of years ago. So they've, they've since been pushed further south.
1: Sure. And I think it's, you know, really important to note too, that in Central America, it's actually disappeared from a lot of its range, uh, with sightings generally confined only to the highlands. And it's the most considered the most threatened mammal of Central America.
0: Oh wow, I didn't know think, that. Wow.
1: Mhm. And then it wow. seems to be extinct in Belize and Guatemala and it's disappeared from parts of Costa Rica, which I've been blessed enough to spend a fair amount of time in Costa Rica mm-hmm. and I I never saw an ant eater, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely going to Costa Rica. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going oh, to Oh, I'll tell you some because... of my favorite
1: spots. It's pretty yeah, wonderful. Yeah. It's pretty magical. I'm definitely going. and, and maybe it, I mean they think, you know, according to IUCN it is still found in parts of uh costa rica so it's hopeful Mm -hmm. but for you potentially um but yeah uh good luck keep me posted
0: yeah i know (laughs) or any of our listeners
1: out there if you have any if you've been able to see any ant ears in the wild uh let us know send us send us some photos i would love i would love to know where to go looking for them yeah i think
0: um, i'm gonna go to greece first For sure. That is on, that is on the 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 plans. So we're planning to go to Greece. I think Costa Rica second. So I will go out in the, in the bush and (laughs) maybe not, maybe I won't go in the bush at night in Costa Rica, but I do am going down there very, very soon. Uh, Awesome. Well, we'll have to
1: figure out, we'll have to figure out what species are in Greece so we can cover that. Mm -hmm. I'd love to learn more about the Mediterranean. I love their food. So I'm sure there's some cute critters there that we can learn a lot about. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, we have to do like a goat. They have like goats or something. I don't know. We did. I mean, the only thing that we've done close is immortal jellyfish. We know they're in the Mediterranean, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll find something in in Southern Europe and uh, maybe give us some recommendations. You know, all of our listeners in Europe, what species do you want us to cover from from your area of the world? And and we'll cover them.
1: Absolutely. In regards to their habitat, the giant anteater is considered terrestrial, right? So as I had mentioned earlier, it walks on the ground, it's knuckles or wrists or whatever. Uh, but that's, which is different than the silky and the tamandua, which are known to either be arboreal or semi arboreal So spend time in lots of time in trees or all their time in trees. So the giant is almost a hundred percent terrestrial. Uh, it, it is a good swimmer too, so it can swim and they require large areas for their survival, which will usually have at least some patches of forested area.
0: And thinking about where they, they live, Angie, it's, it's, you know, I was, I was very surprised at how few there are and, and we'll get to conservation here in a little bit, but they are, they are vulnerable. And like you said, in Central America, they're disappearing. You know, each species we cover has their ecological niche. And this one, you know, for termites and ants is nature's, is one of the major creatures or major animals that is a check and balance to insects. And as Absolutely. you, as they disappear, as they disappear, you're losing that, that balance. And so you're getting this huge imbalance in nature. So it's why I care, why I care. These insectivores are so critical to maintaining a healthy ecosystem. So, you know, we're starting to see some crazy weather patterns and all these other problems around the planet. And here's another one that we're covering of, of the 70 something plus that we've covered where, you know, they're in danger of going extinct.
1: And Chris, I can relate too because I live in subtropical Florida and so we have a lot of insects here (laughs) and we have a lot of ants and ant mounds and fire ant mounds. They're all over our horse pasture. Uh, It's just incredible. They're like taking over. I wish I had some ant eaters that could help control those pests, that pest population. Mm -hmm. So obviously they're not native to Florida. They shouldn't be here. They're not here. Um, but for areas such as Central and South America that also is prone to having termites and other, you know, other insects that can be bothersome to people, they play a pretty mm-hmm. critical role. And mm-hmm. they have just, they're giant, so they have a giant impact yeah. on local right. insect communities. And we'll discuss a little bit more about their foraging behavior when we get to nutrition but they're also very thoughtful insectivores. When they do go to a colony, they typically don't wipe it all out because they know that that would be bad for the colony and it'd be bad for them overall because they would lose their food source. So they just are more about controlling pest populations, which is perfect for the environments that they mm-hmm. live in. So mm-hmm. I'd really like the listeners to think about to be, uh, we're mammal people, right? We mm-hmm. once in a while mm-hmm. we dabble in invertebrates and things like that, but Overall, we talk a lot more about mammals. So insects are Mm -hmm. definitely more foreign to me, but I really want people to think about a world without insects, especially those that are critical to the food we eat, such as bees. Um, and then think about the insects that I don't, I don't want to say they're not important, but that may irritate us such as mosquitoes carry disease, oh. things like that. That's a problem is we're seeing a shift in the ones we're seeing a shift towards the ones that aren't very helpful to us humans and mm-hmm. perhaps, and perhaps harmful to us um, from a biological point of view or from like construction or things like that mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. away
1: from ones that are more important to our survival, such as bees and, and butterflies mm-hmm. and you know, things like that. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. I guess. But I don't know I mean, if butterfly. It's... I don't know if butterflies are important. No, they're or... they are. They're they're pollinators. They yeah yeah. Uh, they're important to my well, survival. These are yeah. so beautiful. But no, no, they, they are. They're. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh like somebody's gonna somebody's gonna, ar- somebody's gonna argue that point, and I'm like, I have I've got to back it up. It's uh but... okay.
0: When UF has Butterfly Fest, go and read up about butterflies and how critical okay. they are to 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 the ecology. They're very important. I mean, most insects are. I think people say mosquitoes have no purpose on Earth, and we could wipe them out. I don't know.
1: Well, bats um, eat them. I get very. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. You take away that food source, and that's not good. So yeah, it's just it's so all intertwined. It's just so all intertwined. And
1: yeah, I here's another major mm-hmm.
0: species. Yeah, is a major species that is on the brink of extinction, and now you don't have something tearing up termite mounds, which, you know, the the Anteater eater gets its fill, but what other species might come in there behind them, you know, and and get their fill and, and knock that population down? So, anyways, it's yeah, it, it's they're important. They're important, they're and important, they're
1: period. super cool to look at. So,
0: <laughs> please
1: <laughs> <They are. laughs> let's keep them <laughs> That's around.
0: The Angie cares. <laughs> <Yeah>. All <sighs> right, so let's let's get into some of their natural history. This one I'm going to butcher. Okay, so their scientific name is Myrmecophaga. No, that's that was horrible. Okay. Murm, murm, murmus, murmec,
1: mur- <laughs> murmec- <laughs> Cofadga. tridactyla, tridactyla. We got you. that means three. Thank
0: you. Thank you. All right, <laughs> so together. that is, <laughs> Angie's on point today. So the family, this is the thing. There is not a lot known about their evolution, but they can trace it back to the early Miocene, which is about twenty-five million years ago in South America. They just don't have a good fossil record on them, so they're still learning more. But the scientists do believe that anteaters, you know, evolved sixty million years, like when most of the other mammals are. Now, the orders Pelosa, and do you know who their closest relatives are?
1: I do because I'm looking at my notes. Okay,
0: yeah, okay, (laughs) well, good. I'm glad you know now. Tell the listeners.
1: It is the sloth.
0: Yes. And we gotta cover the sloth at some point in the next Oh few yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, yes. Sloths always yeah. have one of my favorite things to do in life is to feed a sloth grapes. Yes, they are amazing. I did once they again I didn't amazing. work with the sloth, but my dear friend Amy yeah. did, and whenever yeah. I was having a bad day, she would let me come over and feed. Yeah the sloth grapes, whole grapes. It is amazing. So, so that was everyday.
0: You just some excuse. I'm having a bad day. Let yeah, me feed yeah, you yeah. your sloth.
1: My my pitchfork <laughs> broke. I need to go feed a sloth. Uh my boyfriend broke up with me. I need to feed a sloth twice. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: I thought this was a good point to maybe talk about some co-evolution. And we've talked a lot about convergent evolution where species develop similar traits.
1: Right, which actually brings up a really interesting point about the evolution mm-hmm. is that at one time, anteaters were assumed based on physiology to be related mm-hmm. to aardvarks, another cool one we have to cover, mm-hmm. and pangolins, which we already did cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, but over time with a lot more DNA technology and fossil records, things like that, they realized that they, although the aardvark and pangolin have similar insectivorous traits long tongues mm-hmm. claws mm-hmm. those physical their physical similarities are there but the the common ancestor aren't are not necessarily there and that's a, that's a that's termed con-
0: <laughs> convergent evolution and which that is, is yes. perfect
1: so aardvarks and pangolins the similarities between these two are not a sign of a common ancestor, but a sign of this convergent evolution.
0: Right, right. And they're both in Africa, right? At the, I mean, penguins are and right, are. Right, they're across Africa. the
1: pond. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And here you have anteaters in Central and South America. So instead of convergent evolution, Angie, I went down a little rabbit hole called co evolution. Okay? Oh, do tell. And Fascinating. Are, yeah. And there's a lot of there's so much cool stuff uh, about coevolution, especially with like plants and insects. But for for us specifically, this is coevolution between ant eaters and their prey, so ants and termites. So ant eaters have been eating ants and termites for you know 60 million years. That's been their diet. So as they have evolved together, the ants and termites have developed more stringent defenses against the ant eater.
1: Nice. And then as yeah. soon
0: as the, the anteater overcomes those, these ants or termites have developed more robust defenses. So just to kind of describe this, it, nature you know, really quick, is
1: cray cray. I love it. I it love is. it.
0: It is. That is it awesome. Is so amazing. So ants and termites live in, in a caste system. So there's really three, three classifications. There's the workers, the reproductive and the soldiers. Okay. The soldiers are the one that have developed defenses. So today, and who knows what they're going to have in, in 10 million years, you know, laser guns or something. Who knows what they're going to have? But now today, what they have is like, they can spray toxic, uh, chemicals ah. to defend or the, or large mandibles. Like you see some ant species with like huge or termites with
1: huge, that jaw, mandibles. That bottom jaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So those, those have evolved and. It's going to be interesting, especially when we get to nutrition. We'll talk about the preferences of ants and termites by certain ant eaters. Right? So they've done some research on this. Do they have preferences? And, and then are the preferences related to defense or things like that? So we'll get to it. But they, the ants, it's just so cool to to think about, you know, the ants and termites have responded to predation and they have evolved over time, which makes sense. That's how evolution works, just slowly over time. Small, small changes and, and they're still fighting each other, you know, they're still battling. It's the battle is ongoing. Yeah. It's been going on for millions of years, millions of years.
1: It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Now, maybe you can
0: shed some light on this one, Angie. Okay. So male anteaters live about 15 years, but the poor females only live about 11 years. What is going on? Like, oh, I stumped you.
1: Did you read that? It's fine. No, no. Um. Yeah. Well, I just I know the giant ant, ant eaters have been known to live under human care for up to twenty five years or so, mm-hmm. but in the wild, it's unknown. So, um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd have to. I'd uh, have to fact check that. Uh, but other, I mean, basically I, if I had to take a guest, it's because, you know, being a mom and a reproductive life, they have, they have mm-hmm. a generation interval of about seven years. And so she maybe has a couple of litters and then it's drained her resources. Um, yeah. or the other thing too, is, uh, they do live solitary. So she does not live with a male to protect her. She's is smaller in size, so when you're talking about from a predator point of view, uh maybe you know a, a jaguar or something like that might take down an anteater. It's might maybe gonna be more likely to take down a female than a male. That's just complete. Mm-hmm. That's what I was
0: thinking. Complete yeah.
1: conjecture. Um That's why I love this podcast. No, that's what I was thinking. You know? <laughs> he threw me a yeah. curveball, and I'm like, huh. <laughs> So, I, but yeah. Well, so that's, what I, I mean, that, that was my
0: instinct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I didn't read that, but I do think a lot of what we, in the wild, we don't know. So I, what I'd be interested to see is this data we have on Aunt Andrews living under human care. Is that the same when they're under human care? Are females right. right. kicking the bucket quicker than males? Um,
0: I didn't and, see that. And if so just,
1: why is it disease? Is it something like that? Yeah. Um, so yeah.
0: Well, I brought, I brought it up because I thought, you know, shout out to moms. That's kind of what I, my, my initial thought was, I mean, not only predation, but it's tougher out in the wild, solitary raising young by yourself. And, oh, you yeah. know, whether defending the young or, you know, not being able to defend with the young, you'll, you'll talk about some of the specifics in, in repo because they have some yes. really good cool behaviors.
1: Yes. They do some cool mom mm-hmm. things. They are. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll wait for it.
0: So anyways, I, I'm going to tell you, shout out to the anteater moms. Like, you know, it, it seems like they have a little bit tougher. I mean, definitely tougher life out in the wild. Now, some of the other physiology of them, uh, poor eyesight, small ears, so their hearing's not that great, but incredible sense of
1: smell. Oh, I yeah. Mean, they They're sniffers. Sniff those out, right? <laughs> yes, Chris. I was watching this video of a tamandua foraging, and it was so funny because you could hear him sniffing. The whole time because their sense of smell is amazing. It's a uh, researcher's approximate. I don't know if they have how they figured this out, but 40 times Mm -hmm. more powerful than ours is what they guess, which is Mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they're just sniffing away, sniffing for the crevices to stick their long tongue down, which is super charming, right?
0: Yes. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And here's another fact that maybe see if you did your research or not. Ah, They have the, well, (laughs) stump the chump night. Mm -hmm. One of the lowest body temperatures of any mammal. So 91 degrees Fahrenheit or 32.7 Celsius. Mm -hmm. Do you know why? Why they would have such a low body temperature? Yes. Well, I, my nutrition friend.
1: (laughs) Well, I think, I think it's speculation. I don't, I don't know if you could design Mm -hmm, an experiment mm -hmm. to prove this hypothesis, but, um, yes, Chris, researchers speculate that basically, Eating termites and ants is low in calories, which I should maybe try that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think crickets are, crickets that's and a, grasshoppers are coming in a style. I should like, it's like one of the cleanest <laughs> sources of protein. I'm, I'm going to get on that bandwagon because when yeah. you eat just these oh, insects, God. your energy intake from food is, is low. And so it basically gets by on. And not, you know, the energy that it needs to just basically run its body. People People always think about, oh, I'm burning calories today because I went for a run or because I chased my toddler around all day. And mm-hmm. you definitely do for sure. But you also have kind of just your basal metabolic rate, all the calories it takes to keep your body warm, to keep your heart beating, to keep growing or keep lactating or whatever it is you're doing that you're not really conscious of, right? Just the to keep your body going. And so ant eaters probably coordinate their body temperature so they can keep cool during periods of rest and heat up during foraging to basically help digest these, these ants and on a, on a low calorie diet.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's so, I mean, when you think of the physiology too, so if we go back to Panda, when we talked about the Panda and they just bamboo, which we talked about, they have a carnivore stomach, but they, all they eat is this high fibrous diet very low calorie. So they're lazy. They're just tired, sleep Mm -hmm. all the time because they're not getting enough calories. But here you have a species that's presumed to be on a low calorie diet and it's pretty active, right? I mean, they're out there foraging and expending a lot of energy or even, you know, fighting or, or, you know,
1: digging, trying to defend Mm -hmm.
0: themselves against predators, digging. So it's just, it's just, it's so interesting when we cover all these different animals, all their strategies to basically survive. Right, day-to-day. it
1: really is. You know, they
0: all have different strategies. Mm-hmm.
1: And, a, and a fun little yeah. tidbit for your next cocktail party that I'm sure most of our listeners mm-hmm. regularly go mm-hmm. to cocktail parties. <laughs> I use that joke with my students, and like I think I have one student laugh because of course nobody goes to cocktail par- yeah, parties. Yeah, <laughs> like, That's so silly. But anyways, um, but no, yeah. uh, ant eaters, they are uh, they basically form the super order called Zenartha which means foreign alien mm-hmm. joint or something in G- ancient Greek. So there's your your mm-hmm. Greek shout-out. I'm learning. Uh, learning. Uh, learning so Xenartha is a super order of placental mammals that's found in the Americas, and they include anteaters, eaters, mm-hmm. tree sloths, and armadillos. And they mm-hmm. share these several characteristics that are not present in other placental mammals because these guys are considered to be like, the most primitive order of placental mammals, which is really interesting. So the Xenartha, which means strange joints, it's because their vertebral joints have extra articulations. So unlike other animals, other mammals. And by articulations, I mean like how they move and which directions they can move in. And also unlike most normal placental mammals, their ischium, which is the bottom of your hip. It's like your seat bone where you sit down. If you ever sat down wrong, that's your ischium mm-hmm. and their, and your sacrum, which is the lower part of your spine. Um, not quite your tailbone, but that's your coccyx, but right there are fused and that's not seen in other placental mammals and these xenarthas. Oh, okay. You're learning about this Greek ancient Greek name mm. for uh, ant eaters, right? It <laughs> yes. gets better. And I know you
0: can. <laughs> I'm just going to be walking around Greece. I'm just going to be walking around Greece saying I know, Malacca, I
1: know,
0: right? yeah. which I've, you remember well, from the- last week and Xenanth, <laughs>
1: Xenanth, Xenortha, <laughs> if I'm saying it right. Right. Yeah. So, um,
0: and agape Mu. Those are the only words um, I know. So, but also uh, just so know you know what now. you're
1: talking about when you're there, the males also have internal testicles. There, oh, is, seriously? Yes. Oh, so very. I did very, not know that. I know, and I, I, I obviously, you know, couldn't save it for repro because it's just super exciting. Yeah. And the, and uh, the oh. male, these internal testicles are located between the bladder and the rectum, and they think that most xenarthrans have single colored visions, and then they have these super low metabolic, rate, metabolic rates that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and this is cool for us endocrinologist dorks. They also think that they're lacking a functional pineal gland, hmm. which for those of our listeners that aren't familiar, the pineal gland is a little gland near, um, near like your hypothalamus that secretes mm-hmm. melatonin and melatonin is the, mm-hmm. um, in humans, it helps get, makes you sleepy and horses. It mm-hmm. helps, uh, with, uh, basically seasonal. Estrus, uh coming and to help the body know when to come in and
0: suppress it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so then, yeah, another species. Yeah,
1: so yeah, it's it's really interesting. They they seem they seem to lack a functional one, and so my you know kind of my joke is maybe that's why sloth sleeps so much. They don't have a pineal gland to help regu- regulate that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so and serotonin like a, things like that.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I did not know this is. I've I've learned something major today. See, you know, because You're I'm a welcome. repro specialist. Thank you, Dr. Angie. I did not know they were internal testes. And I'm sitting here thinking, because that's something, you know, in all my repro classes, advanced repro classes we talk about. And most mammals, the testes are on the outside. You know, think of a bull on a hot day and he's hanging low. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, to thermoregulate and keep the testes at a lower body temperature for gamete production or or sperm cell
1: production. Yeah.
0: In whales and dolphins where the mammals I always use or elephants is another one um, that I talk about to my students and how do they keep the testes cooler so you can have sperm production. Cause if it's at body temperature 98, 99, 100, it won't produce any sperm cells and it will be infertile. So I'm sitting here thinking, listening to you talk about that. And it makes sense, I guess, in the standpoint that their body temperature is already lower. So their testes don't have to be cooler to produce sperm cells. So that, wow, that's fascinating. That is something I'm going to add to my lectures awesome. whenever I get another job one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> that is cool. That is cool. Yeah. All right. Dr. Angie teaching Dr. Mortensen, um, which you always do. you been That's great. what, no, this Dr. whole, pod, it's not
1: teaching me teaching you. you it's these animals teaching us, right? Like every that's week true. I'm that's just true. blown away. I'm like, I didn't, that is so cool. I didn't know that. And uh, and yeah. like you said, when you yeah. start learning about uh, this, in this podcast, you and I are able, you know, of course we love repro and maybe, yeah, you know, I love behavior and nutrition, but it helps me dive into a lot of other physiological facts about metabolic rates and just things I wouldn't necessarily know. And mm-hmm. it puts a lot of the pieces of the puzzle together, which yeah. which is fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, you just, you start to see it. We start to see all of it. You listen to this podcast long enough, you're going to see globally how all these communities interact. Mm-hmm. Like I'm seeing it now, you know, after doing this for a year and a half, I can see what's going on in the oceans. I can see what's going on in Africa and South America. I can see what's going on in North America, you know, all these species, the North pole, you know, all the species we've covered up there. So, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> some other cool facts. They're good swimmers. Yes. And they can fight off jaguars, you know, and that's why they, they have those, those front claws. To, to help, I mean, the front claws are for foraging, which I'm about to get into, but they can use those to defend themselves. Now, Angie, I guess the the one cool physiology I, I got into was their their tongue. Yes, and the oh, wait
1: for <laughs> it! I just want to warn our listeners right now: if you have no interest <laughs> in the tongue physiology of a giant anteater. Just fast forward us or whatever. Uh, I promise we won't take more than five minutes of your time. Maybe if you're stuck at a traf light, traffic light or something. But it is so stinking cool, Chris. I mean, first we have to talk about the fact it's, that their tongue is how long? Two feet,
0: okay. 60 centimeters. So there's that. So it's the it's the longest tongue to body ratio of any mammal. Done. Cool. So even blue whale, right? Even blue wow. whale. Oh, like,
1: yeah. When you put it in perspective like that. It's yeah. a body
0: ratio, yeah. It's two feet long
1: and it's and shaped just... like a strand of spaghetti. So there's yeah. that. And I'm, yeah. and I'm talking angel hair, right? I'm talking, yeah. you know, some yeah. real nice thin. Italian village, thin homemade. <laughs> I work there in Chicago. Like, it's a great restaurant. And
0: it, and it's, and it's boiled, right? Cause it's really able to bend and go in all different directions, specialized muscles to move it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: It's, and it, Yep. And it has teeny backward pointing spines, which is, yeah. I mean, now let's zoom in on that one on a microscope. That's cool. Yeah. And yeah. it's covered in sticky saliva because it has enlarged salivary glands. So yeah. Oh, it's, And then and
0: they can flick it about 150 times per minute while they feed.
1: Like, right. Which do the math. Do the math on that. It's three times per <laughs> second. Like, uh, come yeah. on, Chris. I want to see you try that. Let's, let's see. Let's no, see. <laughs> one, I, I can't even blink three times per second. Two <laughs> Mississippi. Right. I know. I know. It's crazy. I can't
0: do it. I can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> it's, it's so cool. It is so cool. They just, uh, that is like their, their one really spe- special organ that.
1: Right. And it's just fascinating. Yeah. And just to even get super dorky about the physiology, so this tongue, so humans, the reason we can't, you know, obviously we can't move our tongue that fast or go that long. Our tongue is attached to what is called um, the hyoid bone or the hyoid mm-hmm. apparatus. It's the only bone in the human skeleton that's like free floating. And if you're not familiar with it, Google it. It's pretty cool. I talk about mm-hmm. it in my anatomy class. And so that's where our human, and it, and it sits just basically in front of the voice box. So right there, like. Adam's apple if you will think of that. So that's that's where our tongues attach. Are you ready for this one? Mhm. A giant anteater's tongue attaches to its sternum, which is basically your your breastbone for those of you that aren't mm-hmm. familiar. So it's going all that way and attaching directly to the sternum. Which is just crazy. I mean that doesn't that's incredible that it would have that dynamic of musculature and connection and then length, right? That, I mean, that's, so you're talking two feet externally. Well, were you saying it's two feet in length from the sternum or from, it's the
0: total length.
1: It's total length. length. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it's just, just really, really crazy. And then, I mean, the other thing too, that should be pointed out is ant eaters don't have any teeth.
0: Mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah. So when they, you know, feed on these, Ants and termites, and they they slurp it up, and they crush it at the top of their mouth, and then once they swallow it, their stomach has really strong muscles down there to contract and grind and crush any of those Mm -hmm. insects. So, and they yeah, and they eat up to thirty thousand ants or termites a day. Thirty thousand, like that's insane. That's
1: insane. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If I could eat like 30,000 crickets a day, I'd probably be satiated and lose weight. I love it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh God. I don't even want to be around you when you do that. <laughs> Poor John. A, Here, honey, clean, give me a kiss.
1: <laughs> it's a clean protein, Chris. It's, it's like the cleanest, <laughs> most, it's most efficient protein. That I think that you can eat at this point in time. Haven't oh, tried he, it, but would love to try yeah. it. I don't think uh, I want to eat 30,000 of them a day. Uh um, no.
0: No. But no. I mean I've eaten insects before, but no thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but no, there's some yeah.
1: they also do ingest a little bit of sand and soil uh, to help, almost mm-hmm. similar to a bird gizzard to help basically with mm-hmm. those strong stomach contraction to help grind up um uh, mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. that needs to be ground up.
0: In the food preference studies that I that I looked at or the study that I that I read, and I'll and I'll link it in our show notes. They were talking about food preference, right? And we've done this mm-hmm. in, in, in our nutrition studies and and we've read a lot of research in different species as far as, you know, you present food and you watch which ones they prefer, you know, right. and mm-hmm. the animal will go and, and sniff and okay, I want this. And they eat all that first. So they did that in a, in a controlled environment under human care and the anteaters had a, giant anteaters had a definite preference for certain species of termites, Mm-hmm. But in the wild, that wasn't the case. So they thought, oh, at first they thought this first study, oh, they have a preference for these two species of termites. Well, in the wild observations, that's not what they saw. Hmm. So some of it was the way the termites mounds were made. Okay. So easier mounds to get into. So certain, so they would just whatever ones they could break into
1: Can't or certain sure. mounds.
0: Yeah. Or had lower soldier to worker ratios, uh. but. What they really think, again, is going back to this coevolution. is an anteater will only feed for a certain amount of time on an ant mound or a termite mound. And what happens is, is they break open this mound and then they start feeding. And so they're getting workers, soldiers, whoever they can. But as the workers retreat deeper in the mound, the soldiers show up and they start to bother the anteater. Or that's what they think, that they've mounted their defense and they're defending the the mound against this anteater, making it an unpleasant experience for him. So then the anteater will just move on to the next one. I did see in a couple of places where they talked about, oh, anteaters are smart enough to know not to to exhaust their food supply. Sure. I don't subscribe to that one.
1: Ah, uh, okay. I think well, there's that, yeah, that'd be a hard one to prove, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, 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 think it's more biology. I think this anteater's tongue's getting bitten by these large mandibles, maybe getting some acid spray or whatever. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, this, this, this stinks. I'm not, you know, this is not worth it. And I'll just go to the mound right next to it, you know, a few feet away and tear into that one. And then they yeah. just go from mound to mound to mound. That way they don't exhaust their food supply. But on the other hand, you know, they're getting enough nutrients to survive. Like it's just crazy. It's just nature so cool. and you start seeing <laughs> the, yeah, the puzzle. Yeah. 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 So I thought that was really cool. And the co, it kind of tied the co evolution part in that it, like I said, it, the war is ongoing. It's an ongoing war between the anteaters and the ants and the termites.
1: Yeah. And, and one, I think too, if you look at them, part of, and I, I'm not sure what the answer is, is why they have this long, shaggy coat, but. Their thick skin, you, you'd have to argue that their thick skin and this long hair protects the species, at least their, some of their body from the ant mm-hmm. bites. But as you said, when they mount this huge attack, you know, there's a difference between having five or six bites to like 500, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and they just swarm, you know, swarm the spot, and, you know, all the uh, the pheromones ants release. Oh, I've
1: stepped in fire ants before. Ant. It, it, oh, no. it gets it gets real real quick. Like holy Snikes.
0: Yeah, they're <laughs> fast, aren't they? It's like instantaneous. Oh, yeah. uh, they're the worst. Anyways, uh, I've never South flung America. my shoe so
1: far in that horse pasture. I was like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst. They're the worst. Uh, all right, so that's uh. Feeding behavior, what's some other behaviors they do?
1: Well, Chris, they are, um, with their behavior, they're considered diurnal or nocturnal. And I thought, I found this to be interesting. So I'm like, well, which one is it? And so I kept reading and trying to figure it out. I think they're usually diurnal, but a study in 2006 showed that they're actually in this, the, the small region where they were studying them. And Central America, they were actually more nocturnal. And on colder days, they would maybe be more active in the morning and then shift. So they think it depends on where they're studying them. And they also think that they might be becoming more nocturnal due to human disturbances, hmm. which I found that to be really interesting. Like, of course... Yeah. It, it makes sense, but it, when you really sit back and chew on it and think, wow, our human activity, just us driving in our cars and being building homes and going to school. These just, these are disturbances to a lot of wildlife, right? And they either yeah, have to adapt with us or move or leave or go extinct or whatever. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. That just really struck a chord with me as far as like, if the, you know, if the, these researchers are correct that they're changing their historic activity physiology uh, mm-hmm. to try to be less around humans or to be not, you know, maybe not run over or road kills a big problem with ant eaters or whatever it is. And so I just found that to be fascinating. Um, but when they're not foraging, whether this is diurnally or nocturnally, they're typically resting in de- uh, dense brush and sometimes can use taller grass, but they'll and they, and they don't dig a den or anything. they just kind of carve out with their little nails just a little cavity, like a little like a little like you would maybe in the sand when you scoot your bum into the sand if when you're resting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they they'll typically sleep, which I think is very cute, uh sorry to anthropomorphize, but they sleep mm. with their big fluffy golden retriever tail curled up over its body. And this tail, of course, serves as camouflage. I mean, I keep calling it cute, but it's, it's, it's job is to act as camouflage and then also to conserve body heat. Uh, and so, yeah, they can, uh, they can definitely climb and especially when they're climbing after termite mounds, but they're, the giant ant eater is not as arboreal as, um, the other two species. And they're typically solitary and they don't usually enter another ant territory of the same sex. Um but if if a dispute does occur, they can vocalize, they'll swat with those claws and sometimes even ride on the backs of their opponents, but it's usually pretty quick lift, <laughs> which is hilarious. That's yeah. a great That's visual. a great kung fu mod, kung, <laughs> That's a great visual like a kung fu Foo move with a wah, wah, jump on your back. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're mine, yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I, I get funny. a giggle out of that because, uh, uh, my, uh, John and I have been doing kickboxing videos once a week when we get a chance mm-hmm. and it's just all in the air, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And so we, and, and uh, the video is fun in, in amongst itself, but we also have fun kind of making fun of the moves. Because they're so exaggerated. Uh, but anyways, back to ant eaters. So <laughs> they, um, researchers believe that ant eaters communicate their status or their presence or their reproductive state with secretions from their anal glands. And they can also advertise their presence through tree markings, which makes sense with those claws and urine. Uh, and it's thought that they might be able to recognize each other by the scent of their saliva. Oh wow! I mean, which kind of makes sense because uh, I mean they they're such good. Mm -hmm. They obviously have a lot of saliva that they leave all over the place when they're in different areas, Mm -hmm. and they have such a great scent. I I I would imagine you could tell like oh that that ant eater oh Susie the ant eater she ate more termites today well, it's, or it
0: makes you enter because we've we've looked you know what's in saliva in in humans or some of the other mammals we study like you know amylase and some of the things to break down food but don't really i guess hormones you do yeah we cortisol okay so yeah there's hormones in in saliva so it, and and i'm just saying their nose is so sensitive when you look at all the, what hormones may be in there, you know, if it's, if it's testosterone, estrogen or estradiol or some of the others, and they have such a good sense of smell. So you imagine they can at least tell the sex who was there, but to be able to tell which individual would be, Pretty, pretty interesting. Pretty cool. You know that would be a good study to to do. There you go, Dr. Angie. Get get some funding, go down to South America, and do some uh, hormone analysis I, on saliva. And at the and end of the show,
1: I'm going to talk about a group that is sponsoring a postdoc's research in ant eaters. It is not on saliva, oh, yeah. however, it's on more conservation okay. type stuff. So, but yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> there's more pressing issues. I know. Our I know. We're yeah. I, I tend to these days be a little bit more of a fundamental biologist. I like the the fun, like, no. why, how does this work? But we got to, right. we have to save them before we worry about that kind of stuff. Right.
0: And it's tough. Yep. Yep.
1: But it, well, well, Chris, it actually leads into a kind of a good part about the redu- reproduction and reproduction behavior, because although we do know a lot about the reproduction, honestly, the mating system of giant ant eaters, um, in the wild, there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, now, in the wild, it's thought that they bred between March and May, uh, but under human care, it's definitely been more flexible, and they can see mating any time of year. And it, when a female is in estrus, a male will follow her around and sniff her, and I guess then they'll stop being solitary. They might even feed at the same termite mound, you know, that's their date. <laughs> when they're getting along, when she's an nestress, mm-hmm, yeah, they might yeah. eat side by side. Um, but basically, they might stay together for a couple days and, you know, they'll copulate. The male will typically stand over the female. She'll lay on her side. And in general, it can be a polygamous system, which means the male will mate with multiple females. Um, but a lot of just – there just wasn't really a lot in the literature – about activity budgets in general, let alone uh, reproductive behaviors or mating systems, which kind of blows my mind a little bit because they're such cool animals. They're such big, iconic. Well, the giant anteater is big. The other the other ones aren't as big, but I just, mm-hmm. but I know that there's just not a lot of funding, and or people maybe took it for granted. But now that the numbers, their numbers are so low. And they're vulnerable by the IUCN. It's like, we do actually need to know more stuff about this and, but it's not a high priority ticket item because, well, we're trying to figure out how to stop them from being, you know, either poached or turned into roadkill or habitat destruction. So anyhow, but what we do know is that once a year, the female will give birth to a single young. Uh, twins are very rare and data from European zoos show that females are you typically reproducing when they're about two years old? And the oldest known reproductive female was 20 to 24 years old. So I think that kind of maybe mm-hmm. answers our previous question where we we're talking about will female in, under human care live as long as a male? So she probably Leave will long. In, in, yeah. in, um, under human yeah. care. Um, and then she, she gestates for about 171 to 184 days. So what's the math on that? Five months, six months? Help me out.
0: Yeah, roughly. Well, yeah. 150 days is is five okay. months, roughly. So, so
1: for six months-ish. Um, and then yeah. a pup is gonna be born with eyes closed and it opens after six days and super cute to visualize. It um it's about three point one pounds, so just a little, you just hold mm-hmm. it in your little hand. Super cute. Um <laughs> And Chris, you had previously mentioned that ant eaters are good mothers. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. they are one of my new favorite mothers of the month.
0: Yeah. I thought you would, that you would like that.
1: I know because they, the Uh, mothers carry the offspring on their back from, mm -hmm. I saw reports from six months to a year. So the little pup <laughs> so, anteater, the little baby yeah. anteater rides on the back of mama and we'll put some video up. Uh, Brookfield Zoo has some great video up. They just had um, an anteater born and so there's, it's just super charming in and it. And the, so the pup rides around on the mom's kind of like back slash tail area and it's born with fur that matches mom's coat. So it's very well camouflaged with mom and it just rides along and the banding on the pup aligns with the mom's banding and it just rides along and on its back. And of course we can mm-hmm. see it, but a, you know, predator might not be able to see it. Just what a good mom. Uh, Because three pounds grows pretty quickly into much, much more uh up to a year. It's just what dedication. Unbelievable. Uh And so, <laughs> And so the mom and the pup, the young will communicate through sharp whistles and sometimes their tongues. Um And an anteater typically becomes independent when it's nine to 10 months old or up to a year. And in general, they should be sexually mature by two to four years max.
0: Earlier in just talking about that, you're talking about their long generation interval, you know, rolling into conservation. I mean, that just makes me really worried for them. Especially with females not living as long in the wild. Right. It's, they're finding them like Angie talked about, right? You, you talked about they're already extinct in, or not seen in some areas. Uh, yeah. In their northern extinct. part of the range mm-hmm. in Central America. Yeah. And in the southern part of the range Correct. in Argentina, areas around there. I mean, it's very rare to see them. The, the estimates right now are about 5,000 left in the world total, uh, in, in the wild. So IUCN doesn't have specific numbers, but it's their, their population's decreasing. I mean, habitat loss is the big right. one.
1: right? Well, and now you see IUCN marks them as vulnerable. So they're definitely recognizing there's a low number They I just think the counts are insufficient to say exactly how much it is. How many? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's, well, it's
0: a huge range.
1: Well, you know. it's huge. I mean, look yeah, their, ma- their range yeah. map is crazy. And we're talking about some, you know, pretty dense yeah. jungles that are left in the Amazon there. Um, but you, with that being said, too, yeah, habitat loss is huge. I mean, and the population has gone down 30% over in the past 10 years based on these local extinctions, overall habitat loss, forest being cut down, and then deaths by fires are a pretty big deal and roadkill. And as you mentioned, this is very concerning because they have these low reproductive rates once a year, once every once every other year, and pups. I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but they have a fifty percent mortality rate to get to a reproductive age. Oh, wow. So yeah. there's that. And then they have these diet specificities. So I mean, they're not. You know, we, we talk about some of these scavengers and carnivores that can just or herbivores. It will can eat anything. Yeah. Uh. You know, mm-hmm. ant eaters. I mean, their name hint. It's in their name. I mean, of course they do eat more than just ants and termites. They do eat grubs and they've even known to occasionally eat a little bit of fruit here and there, but in general, they're, I mean, look at their tongue. They're highly specialized. Right. So yeah, it's just, um, and in some areas of Brazil, they're still actually hunted for food. Um, and I, and, they, and what is being done? Well, uh, there are, they are, they have become protected in many areas in South and Central America and 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 as well as in Argentina, and so what's being done to help these guys? Well, it's definitely recognized by most South and Central American countries that these guys are in danger. And so mm. there has been an increase in protected areas, so that's good. And conservationists and researchers are trying to improve fire management in some of the different dry grasslands area. And in these sugar cane plantations. Mm -hmm. And then they're trying to get population genetic data and habitat use information to try to figure out how the area is changing and what land use would be appropriate for them versus what wouldn't be. And then there's actually a reintroduction program that's being carried out in Corrientes province in Argentina. So trying to put them back into an area that they, you know, are locally extinct. Right. So there is move, you know, I love hopeful stories or, or stories where I can say there's actually some stuff being done to help these guys. Chris, I mean, I, so I looked up data on the silky anteater and the southern and northern tamandua and their population is unknown by the IUCN and mm-hmm. it's be, it's not, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's basically considered no, data no. insufficient, which means that they don't have the counts out there, but they do think that these populations are decreasing as well and are probably vulnerable, if not worse. So, and I, I, I wish we had more time or, you know, in the years to come or months to come, we could maybe mm-hmm. do the silky cause it's just the cutest little thing you ever did see. We'll put a picture on our show notes just to get you excited about it. Um In fact, Jeff, Corwin called it something funny. Um, Like every time he sees one or he gets a chance to be near one, he like falls madly in love. It's like an angelic deity or something godlike. It's like a (laughs) godlike movement for him. Or, anyways, this description of the silky was hilarious and it is super cute. Oh my gosh! Um, But yes, we don't get enough time. You know, we didn't get really enough time on this podcast to go into their the other species of ant eaters uh that are probably in just as much need of our attention as well.
0: But you mentioned, you know, and again, this is one of the reasons we, we love doing this is you, you mentioned earlier, there's people out there looking for a postdoc right now. <laughs> These organizations are, there are people out there on the ground fighting for the giant anteaters, right? So it seems like every species we cover, we just, even you say, I mean, the ones, the hippo, I think it's the only one where we couldn't really find anybody I mean, there's still I know, a governing organization.
1: I, I, I know. I, I had an epiphany. I was like, "Man, I should just. We should just start, especially John or John and I, yeah. just start like a a hippo foundation in all my yeah. free time." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yes. I mean, just, so, anyways, I had that thought about ant eaters because I wasn't really finding what mm-hmm. I I wasn't finding a lot. I mean, there's not just like ant eaters dot You know, there's yeah, nothing. Yeah. You know, there's not gobs goblins out there. But I did find a group. Um, called Edge of Existence. Um, they can be found on Facebook as well as www.edgeofexistence.org. And you can search, they have a lot of different species that they work, uh, that they conserve. Um, but you can search for anteater and it'll give you pull up some really cool things. But the Edge of Existence is a conservation program out of the Zoological Society of London which for the record beat us as like number 2 podcast for zoological podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we are like number 6 or 7. But you know yeah. what, hats off kudos to them. They probably I mean they definitely deserve that. So they're doing Yeah. Really they're doing really cool things like Edge of Existence. Yeah. We don't have an Edge of Existence, so they win. Um but anyways, they it's the only global conservation initiative to focus specifically on threatened species that rep- represent a significant amount of unique Evolutionary history. Did you catch that, Chris? This is right up our alley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They focus on animals, threatened species that are very unique in evolutionary history. So losing them would be a awesome. great loss yeah. to humanity, right? So they use specific framework to identify the world's most evolutionary, distinct, and globally endangered species. That's where the name EDGE comes from, the anacronym EDGE and uh and these their programs highlights and protects these unique and wonderful species on the planet um so these edge species have a few only a few close relatives on the tree of life and they're also they're often unique in the way they behave or the way they look i.e. anteater mm-hmm. tongue walking on knuckles you, you get where we're going with this mm-hmm. so yeah they have a, a a lot of different programs of species that they've selected to work with. And they basically work on the science behind these edge species and they have fellows, AKA not me, AKA wannabe me, uh, and conservation activities that are relevant to animals. And hopefully animals. Um, as you and I do more of these species, we can um, uh, highlight some of the other great work because I'm talking about the ant eater, but they do a ton of other um, species that I haven't mentioned today that it's more, you can find more of their information on, on, on Facebook or their web page. So kudos. Right. Oh, no, that's, Zoological yeah. Society of edge London, of edge of existence. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. And so this week to help, you know, sort of brainstorm like, okay, what can we do? And this weekend, you know, I had a really I know, Chris. amazing weekend, relaxing. We can
1: eat cricket protein. <laughs>
0: no. No. Okay, there's Angie's tip of the week. Mine was a little bit different, Angie. I was supposed to plant a garden, which I never got to, uh with a good friend that I was hanging out with all weekend. And so, we were going to plant some arugula and some herbs and some other things. So, we're going to we're going to get to it uh, in the next few days. Uh, to get out there because it's it's spring or spring's coming here in North America. So we need to start thinking of planting gardens. So I really went on this garden kick and you know, I think if everybody listening planted some vegetables and fruits, it's a collective effort. Mm-hmm. We're talking thousands of people doing this around the world and we're making an impact. You know, you don't think about it. Your little garden by itself is it going to save the world? No. But if we have Millions of people growing their own food, we can make substantial impact. You know, people that usually depend on, you know, going to the store and picking out oh, all their yeah. food. So if you can just make, you know, a, a, a little blip. So that's why gardening is is something you should take up. You should just go out and plant some some of your favorite vegetables or lettuce or things like that. To do that, some other tips with that is compost your and we're going to do this in another podcast I'll talk more about composting but you want to compost all of your you know leftover plants and and vegetables and all those things because that will break down and you can use that as natural yeah, fertilizer have, mm-hmm. rather than buying all these chemicals and if you don't want
1: to buy a compost bin cuz they're not cheap uh my John my husband he just took a, a garbage pail um like a plastic what are those like 50 gallon ones with the lid, with the yeah, lid or whatever? Drawn, yeah, 50 and gallons. you just yeah. drill some drainage mm-hmm. holes in the bottom, small and then mm-hmm. some aerated holes on the top. We do have to manually churn it. I say we. He does have to manually churn it. <laughs> He does. (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) Uh, I got to get in front of it. But no, but it's it's wonderful. And and then that way it's, you know, super low investment and and we, yeah, we have fantastic topsoil for our, our gardens and our herb gardens. So he's great. He's a keeper. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, he is. Oh, you I love John. I yeah, you know, anyways. I love John, I'm glad you <laughs> buried him cuz I love that man. He's so great. But, you know, there's if we do that, we're helping clean, cleanse the atmosphere of, of building up CO2 things like that, and it's also good for wildlife. Oh yeah. World life.
1: Absolutely. And if you, you know, do compost, it's really fun to see uh, the um the worms yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Mine love watermelon. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> now, to get to what we talked about at the beginning, are anteaters dangerous? The answer is yes. If cornered, they can be. There have been reports of anteaters killing people, and usually hunters that get them cornered, or maybe the anteater's injured, and they can they can raise up and strike you with those claws, and they can kill you. So, not
1: a good pet. No, no. Drugs. I saw a picture looking through you the know, archives of it was no. um yeah. um was it a uh, Salvador Dali. Uh, the artist, uh, the painter, mm-hmm. he had one, I think, mm-hmm. like in the streets of New York mm-hmm. on a leash because uh, he obviously was very very eccentric oh, yeah. as he was. Uh, yeah, not a great yeah. idea. Mm-mm. Yeah.
0: It- no. And it, and what happens is, is they get cornered or injured and they have poor eyesight. They can't hear you. And they lash out with their claws. And, and these poor people are you know, they got slashed in like the femoral artery and bled out. Like they just wounds that were really grievous. It wasn't like the anteater attacked them. You know, they're not, they're, they're not dangerous in that sense. I mean, more people die from cows than most other animals, right. In the U S we know that from way back, like 20 something people each year killed by cows. So, so don't go cow tipping. All right. (laughs) It's stupid. Yeah. Yeah, it's stupid. All right. So anyways, leave the anteaters alone. Let's help them. Uh, another great species, fun species to cover.
1: Uh, right. We learned yeah. all about the, the Xenarthos. The, yes. I the can't wait to go to Greece. Mammals simple. that are different.
0: Yeah. Agave, <laughs> you can Spout out all your facts, yeah. all,
1: all your cocktail party facts in Greece. Yeah.
0: Malaka and uh, Xenarthos. I got it. I got all my words. I need <laughs> think? look at me like I'm weird. <laughs> send this guy, send this yank back to the states. All right, Angie, we will, uh, I can't wait for our next one, and uh, I'll talk to you in a few days.
1: Sounds good, Chris. Take care.
0: Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.